0: Welcome
1: to the Swamplex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I
2: am Allie.
0: And I am Boomer.
1: And we are three friends who meet over the internet to discuss movies we've been watching separately. And then we all talk about a movie we watched together. Uh, this time we're talking about two movies that we watched together and they're both the size of two movies a piece. It was a five-hour adventure to get to this conversation today. And
0: change.
2: I was going to say, it really was an adventure, too.
1: So that means that we have plenty to talk about for the main course. Uh, What appetizers do we have? What have y'all been Mm. watching separately on your own accord?
2: So I watched this documentary called Europe After the Rain, and it's all about Dadaism and Surrealism. And so I was expecting this to just be like, you know, a fun little, like, PBS style like learning adventure but it's actually like really cool and weird. It follows the history of the start of Surrealism as a reaction to World War I and the art at the time being very like you know establishment and then it goes on through Dadaism to the end to the beginning of Surrealism onward into the end of Surrealism it's a lot of fun. I learned a lot about Dadaism that I did not know because while they had an effect on, like, cinema, and I definitely heard some stuff in my my old film history classes, it they were kind of, like, brushed over. But it turns out they were really cool, and they were all about, like, provoking the government and hating fascists while also just being nonsense and i love that about them
1: yeah i was always taught dada in like poetry classes and just about like breaking down meaning and language yeah even though like they were like a multimedia art like art movement so like they did film and yeah you know, fashion and and sculpture and yeah, everything else film, but yeah poetry fashion, was like the main culture, thing.
2: poetry yeah it's all of it Um, And then even theater, but a lot of their theater, they would just, like, go out in public and, you know, have people, like, boo and throw things at them. It was great. Um, (laughs) And one thing that this documentary did that I really liked was they had different actors, like, dressed up as, like, the Dadaist and Surrealist, like, reading their letters and their notes and their writings, which was really good. And they actually had recordings, of some of the poetry that they would play in the background. Oh, that's cool. Just because you know, a lot of their poetry was just like sounds.
1: Yeah, you have yeah. to hear yeah.
2: it. Yeah. It was it was really cool. I learned a lot. Um it started because I was just talking about it and I was like, Dadaism, you know, that was all a reaction to World War One and stuff, but and surrealism was just kind of like born from it. And then I As I was saying that, I was like, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I wonder if there's a documentary. It is true. Surrealism just happened and became political like halfway through.
1: Well, it was convenient that another war broke out uh, during the movement (laughs) to give it the sense of purpose.
2: It was interesting with that. And not everybody like politically was into it. Communists in France like rejected André Breton's like application several times to join them, uh, which is great, because Andre Breton was very snobby, and they were arguing that the art was too, like, obtuse, and it wasn't supporting the movement, and it wasn't speaking for the people, because, you know, at that time, like, World War Two, everybody just wants very, like, propaganda-type pieces, and the Surrealists were like, I don't know, we're just gonna paint whatever we feel like and shoot weird films who cares
1: yeah i always think of like communist art being like documentary about like the workers struggle yeah and not really as expressive or yeah. nonsensical
2: yeah and then you know you have your like soviet realism and stuff yeah yeah so as much as the uh surrealists wanted to join left-wing causes they were kind of like shut out because everybody goes like you're just artists <laughs> you just do your weird stuff Which was really funny. But the thing that I absolutely was just like so upset about this documentary is they even mention like all of these surrealists going and spending time in Mexico City with Trotsky. Don't even mention Frida Kahlo. Like at all. And I was like, what? You're going to talk about all these other things that are influenced by surrealism, but you're not going to mention like Frida.
1: When was the documentary made?
2: 1978.
1: Oh, well, there you go.
2: Yeah, yeah, there we go. <laughs> for sure.
1: I'm sure there were a lot of women who were excluded from the uh, the official history there. Yeah. Which is frustrating. Because there were a lot of women in the Dada movement, for sure. Yeah, as I was well. going
2: to say, they mentioned like one or two in the Dada movement, but no Frida, uh, which was interesting considering how tight she was with Trotsky. And also, her art is very, very influenced by surrealism. Like, there's yeah, for sure. no downplaying it.
1: That is interesting, though, to have a documentary that close to when the movement was over.
2: Yeah, I think that was the other thing that was pretty interesting, especially because, you know, Dolly was still alive.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
2: but there was an interview with him, which was funny. I don't know if he just, like, didn't want to comment or if they just didn't want to talk to Dolly. I don't know. <laughs> but overall, I got a lot out of it. And I thought it was super interesting. Like I said, it's movements that we talk about in different sort of art classes, but to see something presented as the cohesive like whole and the, you know, just the full history and story was really cool. that that's what I watched. Uh you've been watching anything cool?
0: Yeah, um, I guess I I've actually seen not a whole lot since we met last because I've been watching the Sopranos for the first time. I'm now at like episode five of season two, and I'm really enjoying it, but I still managed to find some time to watch some movies with friends and such. Uh, first, I saw uh, 1973's Images, directed by Robert Altman, um, which is sort of a horror thriller about a woman who writes children's fantasy novels. And she's receiving these uh, weird phone calls. Uh, at her home so she convinces her husband who is played by uh Rebe- Rene Auberginois who we all know as of course
2: yes oh, Odo no. from Deep Space
0: Nine. Um <laughs> but uh and, and there's something really interesting going on where um even like the characters names are like transposed. So Renee Auberginois plays a character named Hugh, but there's There's really only five main characters in this movie. There's Catherine, who is our lead, who is the novelist, and she's played by an actress named Susanna York. But there's also her former lover named Marcel, who is uh, played by uh, an actor named Hugh Malai. And, of course, there's also a character named Renee, who's played by Marcel Bozufi. So, like this sort of weird inability to really understand who a person is is metatextual as well because all of the characters are named after the actors but like rotated one to the left so she keeps getting these weird phone calls she's getting phone calls that you know uh she'll be on the phone with one person that she knows and suddenly another voice will break through and it'll tell her oh you know Your husband's actually at a motel with this other woman. And, you know, if you call them at this number, you'll actually know that for sure. So she's in this big, you know, ridiculous 70s novelist's house. Uh, Then so they go to sort of her country home so that she can escape and relax a little bit. And she sees visions of her former lover, Renee, who is presumably dead at this point. Like she makes mention that he can't be there because he's died. And it really it's a movie that's very difficult to explain exactly what the narrative is because it's intentionally uh, intentionally strange and intentionally deceptive. It's very
1: like scream of consciousness, like scene to scene kind of flows into each other. Yes. It's very,
0: have you seen it before?
1: Yeah. I was actually trying to remember just now what movie of the month I sought this after. Um, And it was not what I thought it was, which was Puzzle of a Downfall Child, because it which fits very well sense. with the theme of, yes, like... Yes, they're very yeah.
0: similar in that way, which is one of the reasons I was so interested to see it.
1: But it turns out it was actually Three Women, which yeah. oh, uh, I guess I was looking I for those, like, Persona-style, like, breakdowns of, like, you know, not to repeat myself, but Persona. And, uh, yeah, it was just interesting to see Robert Altman in those two movies do, like, psychological horror instead of his, you know, overlapping dialogue, ensemble cast dramas... This one le- leans like, almost into like Jallo territory. It's so yes.
0: high style, low narrative cohesion. There's so much exciting going on with it narratively, despite being something that's difficult to like assign a narrative meaning or idea to. Um, one thing that is weird is everywhere that I look for a synopsis, they all mention that she's pregnant. But I don't think that she is in this movie. And it makes me wonder if someone like fell asleep at the wheel while watching it at one point and wrote that into the synopsis. And that's just been copied over and over again, because my understanding of the narrative is that she was at one point pregnant with her now dead for three years or so lover's child, and that she lost that child or something else happened. So I don't know why her pregnancy, which is really just kind of a throwaway mention in the film is such an important part of all of the synopses that you find online for it. But Yeah, I would give it a big recommendation, as long as you don't really need your horror to be explained to you, which I know in the past, that's been something that I've complained about, things not making sense. But this is a movie where it intentionally doesn't, where, you know, you are supposed to feel as lost and, you know, detached from reality as she is, where uh, at many points in the film, you know, she'll be having a conversation with her husband he'll exit through a door into the hallway and come back from the hallway through another door, but it's a completely different actor and the dialogue just continues uninterrupted. Like at first she's bothered by these like changes um, between these men in her life. And then eventually she just like accepts it. And and so do you. And like one of my favorite parts is when they're, you know, driving up to the house and they stop. Uh, Because her husband wants to like chase down these pheasants or something. Um, And she looks down at the house and she's already there. And then the woman who is already there looks up and sees her on the mountain. But then she just like continues to unpack the car. Like it really, it really feels like viewing one's life through like a fractured psyche. It feels like having a dissociative episode.
1: Which you do kind of like, even though you struggle with like nonlinear narratives sometimes or just non-narrative in general.
0: Yeah. If I was struggling with non-linear narratives, I'd have a lot of trouble with tonight's topic. Um, well,
2: <laughs> <fair>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I just meant like, you know, nonsensical narrative, I guess. But when it comes to like driven mad by the patriarchy, like breakdown of the mind, I feel like that pulls you in more than most movies like that. Oh my
0: God, you're right. I didn't even realize this is my favorite genre. Women on the verge of a nervous breakdown. That's like my favorite thing. Yes. I didn't even think about <laughs> that. It was just appealed to me so much that, you know, Most of those movies aren't made by Robert Altman, which I guess is probably what threw me off a little. This is a very non-Altman-Altman movie, though. Yes, yes. Very briefly, I'll talk about The Murder of Sherlock Holmes, which is a TV movie, but it's actually the pilot for Murder, She Wrote. You know, I talked a lot about watching Murder, She Wrote, and of course, at the beginning of the year, we talked about Gaslight, because the late, great Angela Lansbury had just passed away, and I was working my way through all of uh, Murder, She Wrote, even before that happened. But the gray market copies that I own are all Italian. Um, and because The Murder of Sherlock Holmes, the pilot, was released as an independent telefilm in Italy, I had actually never seen this pilot until today. Um, because miraculously, I was at uh, Half Price Books on Friday, and I walked up to the counter and they keep their sort of like high value items on this like big uh, shelf behind the counter where they're like sort of like impulse buys. But, you know, if somebody brings in like a giant Gundam, you know, that's where it ends up. But also they had the entire 12 season box set of Murder, She Wrote. And I, I walked up to the counter. I was like, I'm sorry. I know you're going to have to get the ladder. But that Murder, She Wrote box set has to come home with me today. I was like, it's coming home with me. I even texted Brandon about it and like moments later. And you said, uh, Brandon, that you hadn't talked to me in a hundred years.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I figured you were gonna like disappear into the sacred texts for a while yeah. and then reemerge a wise bearded man. Not,
0: not yet, not yet. But we did watch the um, pilot episode, which I didn't realize how much it introduced um, Grady, who is a recurring character. Who yeah, is her nephew? Uh, her nephew. He's in the pilot, and I didn't even realize that he was what? the one who initially passed on her like first manuscript to a publisher.
2: Uh, And got that published. Grady.
0: Yeah, Grady is Grady is delightful. And of course, as we all know, Grady does appear as a security officer in Star Trek First Contact. And I was surprised that this pilot episode also starred the same actress who appeared in the Next Generation episode yesterday's Enterprise as Captain Rachel Garrett of the Enterprise C, which of course was destroyed above Narendra 3. Uh, Defending a Klingon outpost from Romulans, um, in case you want to just keep ringing the bell over and over again. (laughs) I'll give you one more. (laughs) But the thing about it is I uh, I was a little bit spoiled for this episode. The killer in this one does return like eight seasons later after being released from prison. So while I was watching it, the moment that person appeared on screen, I was like, oh, I I know who the killer is already. And it was a little bit of a disappointment. Because, you know, it it means that you don't get to have the fun of figuring it out um, like you do. But it's not like Poker Face where it's designed for you to watch her put it together. Uh, But I still really, you know, I enjoyed it as an episode of Murder, She Wrote. There's a really fun costume party that she attends during it. Um, She shows up at this house and she finds out that there's a costume party where uh, everyone is appearing as their favorite literary character. And, of course, that one person is Edmund Dantes from um, Account of Monte Cristo uh, is, like, a clue. But she's like, oh, I guess I'll just have to throw something together from what I've got. And she comes downstairs looking like Glinda. She's wearing this big <laughs> pink dress with giant sleeves, and it's, like, got rhinestones everywhere. <laughs>
2: just gotta put together what I've got.
0: Yeah, and what's shocking is I thought that she was going to be Glinda, but she's like, I'm Cinderella's grandmother. But... <laughs> <laughs> For there are also a lot of really fun costumes and this is the the last thing I'll say about it. Uh, there's a Donald Duck, which is very funny. Um, there is a Disney's Snow White, which is very well very well done. For whatever reason, there's a, a very funny like Peter Pan woman, which I guess is a reference to how like on Broadway and in that famous like live action Peter Pan that was in every like school library in the 90s but was made in like the 70s, they all have like, you know, 30-year-old women playing Peter Pan for some reason. So that was a very funny joke to me. And there's a character who is Humpty Dumpty, and he's wearing this big Humpty Dumpty outfit. And then the next morning after the party is over, he's still passed out in it, and it's a very funny sight gag. So um, (laughs) if you have only ever watched La Senora in Giallo and never seen the pilot, it's out there. I give it a recommendation. And then I also saw at long last a movie from last year that I didn't get a chance to see, uh, Crimes of the Future.
2: Oh, nice.
0: Good stuff. So we've all seen it now, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. It's great. Yeah. It's very funny. Yeah, it's very funny. You know, I'm glad that I watched it with a group of five or so people because we, we all kept laughing. I think that it's one of those texts that if I were simply watching it, on my own and didn't have other people with me to sort of help with the interpretation of what I was seeing. I might've read this as dead serious and not enjoyed it as much.
1: Even with the lesbian mechanics, like running around like Looney Tunes characters, yeah. like running amok in the background.
0: Bresh and router. Oh my God. You're right. I mean, I do love it. <laughs> um, here's a thing about myself that I don't know if we've ever mentioned this on this podcast. I think that other than the twilight zone, my favorite television show of all time is six feet under. And I watched it all the way through the first time without ever laughing once. I read it strictly (laughs) as a drama. And then the second time I watched it, I was like, oh, shit, this show is hilarious. It's actually really funny. Like, I knew that there were one off jokes. You know, the there's the episode because every episode of Six Feet Under starts with like someone dying. There's the episode where Beth Grant, of all people. Sees like a um, sex doll filled with helium floating away into the sky. So she thinks the rapture's happening. She hops out of her car and gets hit. Like I understood that that was a joke and I did find it funny, but I didn't realize that the show overall was actually funny, very consistently. Um, whereas this very much was everyone is so pretentious. Um, Everyone yes. has so little I love concern the ear for themselves. Guy scene yes,
2: where they're just talking about like how derivative, and he just keeps growing ears.
0: <laughs> oh, he's such an edge lord with his ear growing. They're not even functional or attached. Yeah, I really enjoyed the breakfaster chair because we can't in our friend group already because we all watched it together. We're all joking about the breakfaster chair now. Like, um, we went and got snow cones yesterday in the middle of the day. <laughs> And, uh, you know, somebody got like, like the liquid went down the wrong, you know, hole while they were trying to eat their snow cone. And we were like, oh no, you need the breakfast or chair. Um, I guess, you know, sometimes we do this, uh, for those who are listening at home, who don't know, this is a Cronenberg movie that came out last year where Vigo Mortensen and Leah Seydoux are performance artists. Um, it's set in a future where people are growing novel organs in their bodies as mutations The government wants to stop this from happening because as people grow new organs, even though it is quote-unquote evolution, uh, the government wants to stop it because they consider people who allow themselves to change to no longer be quote-unquote human. So part of their performance art is the removal of these novel organs in a live performance. And uh, there's a plot where there's a group of people who have... Uh, adapted themselves to be able to eat like technological waste, specifically plastic, and through some sort of weird Lamarckian genetics, they've managed to actually create a child from their group that eats this plastic naturally without having to be uh, modified through the addition of new organs. And so they are attempting to use the public platform of these performance artists to have this child who was capable of eating plastic naturally and then was killed by his mother because she thought he was an abomination, autopsied before a live audience so that it can cut through the government's sort of like very prescriptive ideology about what humanity can be and what the limits of, of change and evolution are.
1: So the plastic consumption part Is like the part I actually take seriously, and I'm sure there Mm -hmm. is humor in there as well. It's it's been you know a year since I saw this in the theater, but like I think of the movie as being very bifurcated. Like the greatest hits of Cronenberg's past successes are kind of like goofed on, like a lot of nudging to the audience. Like you know, remember the new flesh. Uh, Now it's that surgery is the new sex, is the replacement for that.
2: Not car crashes, but surgery.
1: (laughs) And then. The other half, the, you know, real conspiracy with the kid that this, like, art world, performance art thing, like, stumbles upon really does freak me out. Because it makes you think about how much microplastic waste is already in your body and how you can do absolutely nothing about that and nothing about the slow accumulation of more as we get older. Yeah. Like, it's it's, it's just already fucked. And uh, I like that he still has, like, a way to freak you out even though what he made his name on freaking you out with has basically become kitsch in the last few decades because it's so old and familiar now that it's basically can only be dealt with as a joke, but he still finds a way to like needle you and make you uncomfortable with the
0: plastic stuff. Yeah. And, and he's, it's still squicky too. Like, yeah, you know,
2: it's, there's so much squelching.
0: There's so much. That's what I said to him. Um, we had a, I had, you know, one of the people who watched it with us is not a horror movie fan. And at one point he even like took his glasses off because he didn't want to see what was happening as clearly as it was happening on screen. And afterwards we were talking, was like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I, I don't think that was very pleasant for you because of all the squelching. It's the squelching that really does it.
2: It's the squelching.
0: I also really like that this one manages to like still be, you know, political as well. Like even though it is a joke when he's riffing on very, very clearly one of the things that is being mocked as the videodrome, like VCR stomach where yeah. uh, Vigo Mortensen's character goes to a guy who just puts in like a zipper there, like for the sake of the ease of their performance art. He's got like a rip zip or whatever they call it. Whereas this is a movie about how, you know, just this past week, the 10th state in the United States passed like a gender affirming care ban for trans youth. That like this is like a, a statement about how like the government will do anything to try and prevent people from exceeding the status quo or escaping the status quo through doing things with their body that makes them the truest version of themselves.
1: Did you see uh, Cronenberg commenting on that this week? No, I didn't. No what did way. he say? Like some interview magazine asked him about like his thoughts on like the modern trans movement, which I mean it's very apt because like most critics i follow who are like you know tweeting about his work on a daily basis are like trans people in their 20s and he said something like i can't comment on this from experience but i have been observing it and to me it's an artist giving their all to their art uh which was like i don't know just a great quote yeah. and i saw it you know being retweeted and turned into like fan art and like all uh, just like kind of regurgitated a bunch this past week wonderful
2: yeah i was going to yeah. say as if he would have like a negative opinion like if he did I would worry he has, like, a brain worm. Yeah. I was going to say that I think it's interesting because not only is it, like, the government regulating people's bodies in this movie, it's also anything to keep people from just being able to, like, deal with the messed up things that are going on in the world, even if it's just a natural adaptation to them. Yes. Like, people have to stay underfoot. That's part of being people. You can't have your body go and change and deal with this stuff.
0: Yeah. You know, even if your body as an organism is evolving to deal with the way that like uh, human technology has like destroyed the ecology of our planet, you can't be allowed to do that. You can't. How dare you try and get your face out from under the boot? You know? Yeah. How dare you? And. Also, I really wanted to note this. Nobody does grime like Cronenberg. Everything looks so gross and disgusting. Everything looks like, you know, it hasn't been cleaned in forever. And there's just gunk on the walls. And it's so unrelenting. You know, there's never a moment where they go to like a hospital room and it's actually really clean (laughs) and sterile. And you get a moment to breathe. It's just constant muck and grime and slime and snot and crumbling infrastructure and i love it
1: i want to throw out one more thought about this movie is that it had a really unlikely sister film last year and i always thought about them in tandem but uh peter strickland's last movie um called flux gourmet was also kind of like a greatest hits of like everything he's made so far and it was also this like Alternate timeline reality where like performance artists were like the rock stars of the planet, and um, the main journalist that's like profiling these these like performance artists who are, are in the culinary arts they turn like the process of making food into harsh noise and drone music. Um, and he has severe indigestion. And uh, needs to be like kind of burped and coddled like a baby until he figures out what's wrong with his body. He
2: needs a breakfaster.
1: Yeah, he really needed that chair. Uh, but yeah, those two movies were like incredibly similar to each other. Uh, and if you have any affinity for Peter Strickland, the same way that I feel like most film nerds are have an affinity for David Cronenberg, uh, you definitely should watch Flux Gourmet as well. That they, they go so well hand in hand together.
0: Nice, I love it. Well, what have you been watching, Brandon?
1: Well, I also started an HBO series this week, but I started watching Sex and the City for the first time. Uh, oh, my condolences! Also, about five episodes in the second season, and I'm loving it. It's a great show.
0: Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it turns out, being in your 30s makes that show make so much more sense uh, than it did. You know, all the times I've ignored it up until now. Um, but also, you know, we're talking about an Asian film today, and I've been watching a lot of Asian movies. Uh, so I guess I'll bring all those up all at the same time. I'm going to break a little taboo and talk about the Oscars just a couple weeks after the Oscars concluded. Uh, I've noticed a couple benefits to Everything Everywhere All at Once winning all those awards. Mainly Michelle Yeoh has a great uh, sub-collection on the Criterion channel right now that's um, kind of celebrating her Hong Kong action cinema work um, as an action star. But also Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was re-released to theaters, and I went to go see that on the big screen for the first time.
2: Oh, Nice.
1: Do y'all love that movie? I I really like it, but I've never, like, fully gone into loving it. But I've also only ever seen it on VHS until now.
2: When it first came out, I absolutely loved it. And I probably have not watched that movie in, like, 10 or 11 years. But I still remember loving it, you know, the next few times I watched it. Because I've definitely seen it so many times. But I have, like, a big fondness for, like, kung fu martial arts cinema. I
1: I do, too. But when I get into, like, the wuxia stuff, I've always liked the kind of, like, cheaper, dirtier versions of that than, you know, the Crouching Tiger. Mm-hmm. And also, um, what was the King Who movie we both watched? Uh,
2: oh, yeah. It touches in.
1: Yeah. Like, the higher art versions of that, I'd never really loved as much as, like, the Pearl Chang Wolf Devil Woman. Yeah. Like, the cheaper, lower budget, scrappier How do you feel scrappier about, like, versions. early
2: Jackie Chan?
1: I love that stuff. Like, the Hong yeah, Kong yeah. action cinema stuff is so fun.
2: Yeah, I love that stuff as well. Like, I I think I don't really discriminate.
1: (laughs) Crouching Tiger's a little buttoned up and, like, classy. (laughs) And not, like, uh, you know, as, like, populist and, like, crowd-pleasing as the Jackie Chan stuff, which is goofing around as much as it's being, like, hard-hitting and exciting, you know? Yeah. But I will say, watching those Wuxia fantasy fights on a bigger canvas... Really made me appreciate like the visual beauty of the Ang Lee film more than I ever have, and like just them f- like flying from tree top to tree top or rooftop to rooftop, and you know, twirling uh, in the middle of a sword fight to fight more guys on the second floor. Yeah, just really beautiful choreography and wire work. The story, I I can't say ever really lands for me that much. Like I've never been enveloped in like the will they, won't they, with Chow Yun Fat and Michelle Yeoh or the other will they won't they with the younger warriors that are kind of under their tutelage um, or the honor of, you know, finding a new home for this 400 year old sword. I don't know. I, I don't really have a lot of patience for that. The way that like the faster martial arts cinema lands with me, like the John Woo movie we watched hard boiled, um, boiled. for movie of the month. Like that is a perfect action film.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's so good.
1: But uh, I don't know. I I really just appreciate that. Like, as easy as it is to dismiss the Oscars as something that doesn't matter, it's cool that, you know, as a marketing tool, it can get something like this back in the theater over 20 years later, or, you know, get Michelle Yeoh's like victory lap on the criterion channel. And even when crouching tiger had its day, uh, it was nominated for like nine Oscars and won I think about half of those. It also made it easier for other martial arts movies to get international distribution. Uh, one of the directors that benefited from that was Zhang Yimou, who um, directed Hero and House of Flying Daggers, which I remember watching both of those at the Suburban Multiplex, you know, when they came out. And at the same time that Crouching Tiger was playing again in theaters at the, on the other side of the river, I went to go see his new movie, which is called Full River Red. It's not a wuxia film the way that Hero and House of Flying Daggers are. It's It starts as a whodunit and then turns into this like political espionage like shell game where you're trying to figure out who is double triple crossing who it's set i believe in the 12th century there's this diplomat who's traveling between these two warring dynasties who is murdered and uh, the prime minister in charge of the like military camp where the diplomat was murdered is basically like okay we need to find out who killed him but also this person has like a letter that was supposed to be delivered to me and if it gets out, then I will be implicated as a traitor to my dynasty that I'm serving, so he assigns these two makeshift detectives to both find the letter and find the murderer before dawn, um which unfortunately means that most of the movie is shot in day for night, kind of like this like digital blue haze, which which
0: again we'll be talking about a lot today, true, true.
1: <laughs> I didn't particularly love looking at that for two full hours. Like, <laughs> if, uh, if if our main subject today was six hours of uh, day for night, digital blue filter, I might have gotten a little bored with it. Luckily, Full River Red, even though it doesn't have a lot of martial arts fighting, it's more like well-timed, vicious assassinations, more than it is like close quarters fistfights at this military camp. It is very zippy. The mystery of who is at fault for this crime is a uh, very fun and twisty in a way where you, you get taken aback by who's in on it a few times. I mean, also as the detectives jump from room to room, there's a lot of like hip hop electro updates to Chinese opera, classical music.
2: Oh, that's cool.
1: And it sounds so weird. And it comes in these like short bursts as they're, you know, marching from suspect to suspect. And it kind of like jolts you awake. We're like, whoa, I've never heard anything like this before. So, you know, hero and house of flying daggers, I think are more, you know, substantial films <laughs> than this. Uh, this is definitely more in the uh, recent Chinese blockbuster filmmaking mode where it's basically like state nationalist propaganda, mm-hmm. which is unavoidable. Cause that's just how those movies get made now. Um, you know, yeah. there's a reason why the Hong Kong action scene was so free and, Inventive when it was and then that stopped very abruptly.
0: Yeah. And mm-hmm. you know, it's also worth mentioning that's it's that way everywhere. Like there's a reason that oh, there yeah. was an army recruitment ad before uh Captain Marvel as well. An Air Force. Yeah, or that ad. Top
1: Gun Maverick was itself an army recruitment ad and you know, yeah. people fawned all over it. Yeah. America, you know, has its own MCU and Top Gun and every movie Michael Bay has ever made. Uh, okay, <laughs> so yeah. but if you pay attention to Chinese blockbusters, like every single one is like that. There's no variety. But he gets that obligation out of the way and delivers a very fun populist mystery entertainment film, you know, between those obligations. It's not a perfect film, but I I appreciated that it got, you know, international distribution. I feel like he's still riding that post-Crouching Tiger notoriety because I'm sure there are plenty of other filmmakers making blockbusters in China that never reach here, but he is a household name because of that like whoosha bump after that particular year of Oscar stuff. So it's a very useful marketing tool that continues to resonate with what movies we get access to see in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I have one more. I, I've watched another South Indian action film, which is obviously relevant to our subject today. But I, I really like that genre there right now. I feel like the way that Hong Kong action cinema in the eighties and nineties was like the best action cinema being made at that time. You can definitely make that claim for India right now. And particularly the Telugu and Tamil industries in South India are really delivering the most extravagant, over the top populist, widely entertaining action movies being made. Uh, I watched a throwaway one that played in theaters for like a week or two and then showed up on Netflix within the month uh, called Thune which played, I I believe in like January and I just caught up with it. It is a bank heist movie in which uh, we watch this like group gather around this map and plan out this elaborate heist. They get in the bank, they start taking it over and uh, taking hostages. And then that heist is taken as a heist by the action hero of the film who um, holds the bank heist hostage and then reveals that he has secret knowledge That the money they were stealing was already being stolen by the real thieves of the world, (laughs) who are uh, the bankers themselves, who are, like, screwing over the people who invest in the bank. And so it's a heist within a heist within a heist. And he uses Uh, this opportunity to reveal the bankers' crimes to all of the people watching from home on social media. This
2: sounds great.
1: Yeah, it's really fun. It kind of devolves into, like, almost like a big short-style financial lecture in, like, the last hour, but... uh, It's also just like, you know, a bunch of bullets being fired at, you know, people you hate, and then the bankers get kind of like shamed on national TV uh, in a fun way. Uh, The main star of the movie, Ajith Kumar, um, I believe is a huge star. This was something like his, I don't know, 60th or 70th film, um, and he has been an action star in South India for a long time. I don't know whether I've ever seen him in a movie before, but like all of these films, he is sort of portrayed as the most epic, unstoppable, noble, badass who ever walked the planet Earth, uh, which (laughs) calls back to what I love about American action cinema from the 80s, uh, you know, the stuff like Commando with Schwarzenegger. It's the same kind of thing. He's like a god among men. And then also, obviously, ties into what we're talking about for our main topic today. If you want a smaller dose of that stuff in a more modern setting, Thunivu is a fun bank heist thriller that, you know, points and bullets at the right target
0: I wouldn't normally because uh, I I don't think that what we're gonna talk about should be made smaller or more modern in of what it is but you did have me a thank so. <laughs> Next week's episode of the Lanyap Podcast, I had Brandon and Allie watch five hours and change of cinematic magic. We watched uh, Bahubali, The Beginning, and also Bahubali 2, uh, The Conclusion, which I had previously seen and had actually included on my list of my favorite movies of that year. But it is important, we were just talking about this off mic, and I, I think we're going to have to delve into this again more later. When I initially saw this film, I only saw the second one uh, five years ago in theaters. It was on a date. Um, the person who had asked me out was a server at the Alamo Draft House, and was like, oh, you know, I watched the first one yesterday. I can just fill you in on what the plot of that was, and when something doesn't make sense in the second one, I'll just tell you what's going on. but if you've ever been to an Alamo Draft house, the servers aren't really getting to watch the movies and especially a movie that's like not in English and you have to be reading the subtitles. So I did sort of have a misunderstanding about what this film was about uh, for the past five years. I still love it I think I love it more than I did the last time. And I I definitely want to get into it. So for our listeners, this is a two-part story that is, it actually is two parts. You know, we open with a very uh, mosaic-style mythological story about a baby being found in a river and then being raised as part of one group only to eventually discover that um, they come from somewhere else. And the somewhere else in this case is the city of Magishmadi, uh, which is sort of a utopia, at least in theory. And this child grows up to be um, Mahindra Bahubali, but is raised under the name Shivu or Shiva, depending on um, which translation you watch. Um, He makes his way up this waterfall, falls in love with a warrior princess, meets a group that tells him about this fabulous city, uh, and then learns the history of how he came to be from that city, which is that his identical father, also played by the same actor, Pravash, was named as the successor to the uh, throne of this city, even though he was not actually like the firstborn or the first in line. Um, and how his cousin, who with whom he was raised as a brother and whom he refers to as brother eventually ascended the throne and took over and killed uh, Shiva's father, who's also named Bahubali. But uh, he becomes the king. He's overthrown. His son is raised in a village and comes back to eventually uh, rescue his imprisoned mother and take his rightful place on the throne of this city. You know, I did mention just now that it's in multiple languages. I didn't want to tip my hand in the group chat at the end of last week, Brandon, when you were like, Hey, um just so you know there's two different versions on Netflix i decided that since i had seen the telugu version of the second film in theaters that i would watch the first one in hindi and then the second one in tamil just so i got to savor the fruits of of every translation
1: <laughs> it is kind of infuriating that you know we don't have the option to watch the telugu version at yeah. home that's bullshit yes mm-hmm. i agree netflix also did that to rajamouli's new movie rrr uh, not to bring up Oscar contenders again. Well,
2: it's uh, <laughs> it's relevant this time, at least.
1: It is relevant. Uh, and, you know, he hasn't enjoyed a boost since that award season recognition. You know, Iga just got added to Netflix and is experiencing cinematic celebrations. Maybe just because it's easier to program than Bahubali, because that would require two nights, I'm assuming. Yeah. <laughs> or blocking out half a day <laughs> of whatever fucking Shazam and John Wick. Sequel uh, space <laughs> that those screens need right now. But uh, the only way to watch his movies in the original language that they are filmed in is in the theater at those victory lap screenings. Netflix offers a lot of his movies to an international audience, which is great, but they only offer these dubs usually in Hindi, which has a whole political implication about, you know, Hindu nationalism and uh, just sort of like the, the, Devaluing of the movie industry and the you know cultural region that he makes movies in in the first place.
0: Yeah, it sucks.
2: It does. No, I
0: I agree. You know, and uh, when I was watching the second one because I was watching it in Tamil, there's okay. So I have seen interviews with Pravash where he speaks in English, and I find the dubbing of Junior (laughs) Mahubali the second more distracting. In Tamil than in Hindi, where when you're watching it, and maybe y'all didn't know, I don't know if y'all noticed this or if you felt the same way. It's almost like they're using a different voiceover actor to dub Shiva than to dub his father. Like his voice sounds deeper, and it doesn't sound like Pravasha's voice at all. I thought it was an acting choice. I don't know. I, yeah, I, I thought, thought it was just an like just well, Maybe so. Maybe I'm Asian. misreading it. But I was like, I, it's it's interesting that in the Hindi version, whoever was doing, if it is an acting choice, they did not do that same acting choice when doing the Hindi voiceover.
1: I will say, like, just in general, the different translations things as they're offered to you throws me off every time. I want to watch an Indian movie, even in the theater. I remember seeing one. A couple years ago, there was like this romance that was filmed in Tamil and Hindi at the same time. And the two versions had two different composers uh, for their musical sequences. So the music was entirely different for both films. And it's like, well, how the fuck am I supposed to know which one to watch (laughs) as an American audience? Like, you know, if I was Indian, I would watch the one... That, you know, was probably programmed for my region because there would be cultural references that would make it more relevant to my, you know, life and understanding. But uh, as an American,
0: I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. I just tossed a coin pretty much. I did also go back and watch certain sequences in both uh, whenever I was rewatching Bahubali to the conclusion. In a lot of ways, there's just some of it is just very different or very slightly different names. The spelling of the city. Uh, it's Mahishmati and Magishmati and another one you know whether he's called Sivu um, or Shiva differs between translations the interesting thing is that one of the parts that I rewatched is the song that Deva Sana and her attendants sing when they're doing sort of like the prayer oh yeah yeah it's the sequence where in the musical you know he's everything that she does to the idol then happens to yes yeah you know where they dash him with the water you know the anointing water and then of course like a bird flies up and you know flicks drops of water into bahubali's face one of the more classical arrangements
1: as far as the music goes yeah
0: yeah when you picture like an indian movie
1: that song fits the mold more than most of the songs in the actual film do i think
0: Yeah, uh, true, although my actual favorite is is even more so. It's the one where they're on the boat. Oh, that's my favorite.
1: Yeah, but the arrangement of the song actually has, like, kind of modern pop music
0: production. Yeah. That has ended up on so many playlists in my life since I saw this movie five years ago. That song has been played at every birthday party. Um, But just to backtrack a little to the one that is a prayer to Krishna, The lyrics are translated very differently between the Hindi and the Tamil versions, where in the Hindi version, it's much clearer that she's telling a story about, you know, Bahubali, who she still believes at this point to be like a simpleton, based upon the way that he was presented to her and the way that he has behaved. Um, So I did think that that was interesting. But, from what I could tell, you know, I didn't have time to watch um both movies in both available versions,
2: but you didn't have ten hours
0: no, I didn't unfortunately um i had I had to watch <laughs> I had to watch sixteen hours of the Sopranos in the past two weeks. Um, <laughs> there are differences like and i I wasn't sure if I would find any going back and forth, but I did find some, but when it comes to the actual dialogue, there doesn't really seem to be that much difference. And it seems to be like the sort of things that you often see whenever you read two different translations of the same text, where they're essentially the same. But there's certain poetic differences that are a little bit illuminating, but not, you know, nothing that I really found exciting enough to, like, make a note of to bring up, you know, in our discussion, other than to talk about it just generally.
1: Well, also, they're they're visual spectacles, like, first and foremost. So as long as they're not, you know, removing scenes or changing action, they're not going to, like, get rid of the underlying meaning of, of the bigger picture, I guess.
0: That's true. The one thing that I did find a little bit distracting is, you know, that scene with the musical that is the Prayer to Krishna, right before that is the scene where... Uh, They're trying to, De La has picked up that there's something not quite right about this, you know, simple shepherd that's living amongst them. And so she has him confront the bull, like the bull, and then he just, he lets the bull hit him. After that, whenever they're like doing sort of the administration of like salves scene, there are more like comedy sound effects in the Tamil yeah, version.
2: <laughs> yeah, the Tamil version, I wasn't sure if it was just, like, the acting there, but it felt, like, very, very comical, that whole thing. And they kind of
0: drop it after that, too. Like, it comes out of nowhere, and then they don't really do comedy, like, sound effects like that afterwards. Although I guess there's not more, like, scenes of him being an intentional buffoon after that, either.
1: To me, that sounds like a difference in sensibilities of Bollywood versus tollywood and collywood which are the south indian markets um and you know separate film industries even yeah the, the ones made in south india have more like broad slapstick the violence kind of urges into tastelessness a lot <laughs> and you know there's also like some really off-putting you know colorism among like the caste system i definitely politics. want
0: to talk about that uh, yeah uh, there's
1: also a lot of like sexual assault stuff in the south indian stuff that doesn't really make it into the more polished bollywood movies but in that volatility and in that like kind of broader populist filmmaking i actually find the south indian markets more fun because they surprise you not not always in a good way, but they feel like more like anything could happen at any time. Uh, so it will like veer into like slapstick comedy in one scene. And then the most brutal like child murder violence you've ever seen on the big screen in the next. Which is, I mean, partly why I like going to the theater to see this stuff. Because, you know, I never know what I'm sitting down for, really. So I could see maybe them scrubbing some of the like the goofier, like
0: Three Stooges humor for the Northern Indian audience. It is very strange the beautiful women in this movie are all very light skinned yeah and you know yeah i, I want to make sure we are all white people so i want to make sure we're treading lightly here but there does seem to be something going on especially with the kalakaya the sort of like chaotic evil orc people oh yeah
2: uh-huh and they're like i know they like had fun and made up the language for this but it's still very like there's click sounds, and there's no translation, and they're all in blackface and dressed as barbarians.
1: Yeah, the like savage warrior trope is very off-putting. And, you know, a complicated political issue that we are not qualified to really delve into, but the more, the more you watch these movies, the more often that comes up.
2: Well, we're not necessarily qualified, but I think it's pretty common knowledge that around the world like white supremacy has been
0: it's it's introduced a um tendency for even people who have a wider variety of darker skin tones in their community Mm
2: -hmm. for
0: their media to promote whiteness and european whiteness as an ideal
2: people are bleaching their skin we know it people are getting plastic surgery to have quote-unquote more western features
1: Well, in this culture in particular, like there's also like a very strict, rigid caste system Mm -hmm. sort of based on that difference. Yeah. I mean, you even see it in like one of the stronger bonds in the film, the, you know, the noble slave that uh,
0: serves this family his entire life. Katapa.
2: Katapa, yeah. I was
0: so excited when he showed up in the first one, by the way. (laughs) Because I wasn't sure if he was going to be. Because, again, I had only seen the second one. He doesn't show up until, like, an hour in. And I was so happy. I was like, yes, my boy is uh, here. Yeah, he's great. I also like that Rajamouli
1: gave himself a um, cameo in the first movie uh, as, like, the bartender in the, like, sort of open thief market.
2: Oh. I (laughs) I was like, oh, my God, it's him. That's great. Yeah.
1: Looking uh, way younger than he does uh, only, you know,
0: seven years later.
1: But, you know, we've all had a rough few years. Yeah.
0: Well, according to one of the interviews with Pravash that I watched, the interviewer was asking him, like, how did you stay, you know, so in touch and attuned with this character and stay on this project for five years? So it does seem like he, if he shot that early on, that might have been 12 years ago. Not. That's eight. a good point. So- yeah. I think this was
1: like the most expensive movie in that movie industry for like the longest time. And it might have only been topped by RRR more recently, uh, which is also extravagant. And honestly, it looks even more slick and professional than this does. Because there's a lot of like choppy edits from scene to scene where it kind of... There's a few rough transitions, you know?
0: Yeah, I like them. They they lend everything an air of we're just having fun. Yeah. But yes, they are present. It's true. And, you know, on the same point,
1: I really like the sort of surreal cut and paste CGI quality to it as well. It feels like they're using the resources instead of trying to make things look realistic, trying to make things... As spectacular as possible and like trying to push what the technology can show you yeah. on the screen, even though it, it might not look tactile, it's still going to blow your mind. Mm-hmm.
0: I did want to talk about that as well because I loved it.
1: But there's like quality control issues sometimes where like one of the evil like uncles <laughs> in the uh, <laughs> castle that's like pushing his son. He has this sort of limp arm that um is a thing he can't stop mentioning. No one else really mentions the fact that he's, you know. Physically disabled in that way.
2: Nobody cares except for him. Yeah.
1: A couple times his, you know, CGI disabled arm is like completely see-through. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> there's like a quality control issue there. Um, that kind of goes beyond like I don't I don't want to make fun of the movie for having cheap CGI. That that doesn't matter. Uh, but there's a couple times where it's like, well, they could have cleaned that up a little bit if they had more time <laughs> so you know pay attention.
0: I'm gonna make a comparison here that might seem insulting at first. But about 10 years or so ago, ABC had a television program called Once Upon a Time,
2: uh, yeah. which was basically
0: <laughs> like a kitchen sink of all of these different fairy tales.
2: Which we've all watched, which is hilarious.
0: Have we all watched Once Upon a Time? I watched probably the first season. I've
2: watched like the first four seasons.
0: I watched it all the way to its conclusion, oh, wow. including the like really horrible <laughs> epilogue season, which should not have been made. Look,
1: you've also stuck with Riverdale, so yeah. no
0: one can doubt your commitment to Sparkle Motion. Yeah. You, no you one can to Well, So the thing about Once Upon a Time to me is that it really made me, it felt to me like the continuation of the NBC supernatural soap opera Passions. <laughs> <laughs> to me, there's not really a huge quality difference between Passions and Once Upon a Time. There's a big budget difference, but not a big quality difference. And what the reason I bring it up is that in Once Upon a Time they often had like every time they went to the, you know, the Queen's Castle in the fairy tale land or the forests around it, it was the worst looking CGI that you can even like imagine. Uh, it's like whenever you're watching the first episode, I, oh my God, I'm making another television reference, but you're watching the first episode of Lovecraft Country. And they show the exterior of this house, and you're like, God, you couldn't have spent five more dollars to make this look better. And then it gets destroyed in that episode. So you're like, Oh, okay. You didn't, you didn't want to spend the five extra dollars. That's fine. You
2: actually couldn't.
0: Yeah. Once upon a time's CGI, I think that they expected that we, the audience, would be forgiving of the bad environmental CGI and chalk it up to being like, Oh, it's a fairy tale environment. It just always looked fake to me. But even the stuff in this that looked bad or fake to me, I enjoyed it on like a different level. Whereas like this feels more mythical yeah. in the way that I think once upon a time wanted us to unsuccessfully, but this movie definitely does. Because the only the only, even the very end of the second film when um, is like <laughs> beheaded statue. First of all, oh. the gold would not float down yeah. the river, but even allowing for that, it's a very bad looking CGI effect. And I think that's the only one that I think is actually like bad in a bad way.
2: Really? All of the others, I, kind I of, love it. I kind of really love that just because like the idea of that statue was already outrageous.
1: True. I just love like, I love the like populist pro wrestling style oh. um, yes. signaling to the audience of like who to cheer and who to boo. Uh-huh. Um, and that statue in particular, as it's, like, being erected, you're, like, okay, they are tearing that motherfucker down. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, until it gets torn down and beheaded the entire time, you're just, like, waiting. Uh-huh. Like, when are they going to fucking destroy that statue? Well,
2: that's the thing I like about this movie and also R is there's no, like, ridiculous piece of set dressing that isn't going to matter later. Like, the damn. Right. You see the dam in this wide, expansive shot. And it's not just a set like something is gonna happen. They pull yeah. down the dam.
0: There, there's no extraneous elements yeah. to anything that you see.
2: Yeah. That's the thing that
1: you know, there's no point in making fun of something that like doesn't look slick and professional here. The thing that you should be making fun of is the fact that Marvel has like a hundred, a 1, thousand times the budget of these kinds of movies. And they use that technology to create, like, green screen backdrops to make it look like fucking two superheroes are in a cafe or, like, knocking on a doorstep in New York because they don't want to film on location. And, like, that shit looks uncanny and unreal and not tactile, but they're using it to make the most mundane, corner-cutting corporate bullshit where, like, this is using the uncanny CGI to actually, like, push the imagery into... Something that could not practically be made in a real environment. So it's using the tool for what it's actually supposed to be for, which is like, uh, you know, illustrating something that cannot be physically constructed. Um, And thank God they do that. Like they, they are making some of the most entertaining films on the market right now because they're not afraid of being phony looking. Yeah. If you are if you allow yourself to look a little phony, then you can do supernatural things on the screen exactly. that uh, no one else is pulling yeah, off. Yeah,
2: it's like, you know, if you're okay with being a little embarrassed or, like, jeered at by the people who don't get it, you can actually, you know, do something right. cool. But the thing I was going to say also in reference to the Marvel thing is a lot of the newer Marvel movies, because of how they treat their people who working on special effects, uh-huh. look like this. To me.
1: They look like this and they're like not achieving anything nearly as entertaining. Yeah. I will say I'm kind of like being protective and like saying that it shouldn't be mocked for like humor, but I I did laugh both times before this and before RRR where they have the warning that says, you know, don't worry, the animals are CGI. I have that in my (laughs) notes as well. (laughs) I wasn't worried.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So in the Hindi version, Whenever there are animals on screen being abused, they actually put up like a little CGI, like the letters CGI in the corner of the frame. They did that in the Tamil version. Oh, too. okay, okay. Cause I, I saw it more in the first one and it was it was very funny to me because it was like anytime there was a bull or a horse, but not when there was like an elephant for some reason. I don't know.
1: You know, I've seen that too. Um I can't think of a specific example. Maybe in two point oh, where like if characters smoke on screen, they'll show like a a smoking health hazard warning.
2: Oh, wow. What, is, a at what
1: the bottom.
0: is 2.0? What do you mean by that?
1: Uh, that is a sequel to the film in Therin, um about a robot who is a badass hero. Uh, <laughs> and I highly recommend them. They're like, that's actually what got me into this style of action film in the first place was I, I went to see 2.0 in 2018 Not knowing that it was a sequel to a previously released South Indian action film, uh, much like your experience with Bahubali. And uh, it just like completely blew my mind. Yeah, and I've I've ever since, like, I try to go see as many of these on the big screen as I can, because like in that environment, there's really nothing else like it. I do think there is a uh, even more direct corollary we could draw here to a Disney product that's not Marvel or Once Upon a Time. Which is that recently uh, Disney had an uncanny CGI remake of The Lion King, uh, which this movie is also an uncanny CGI remake of The Lion King. It is the exact same story, uh, (laughs) but stretched across two films. Okay,
2: I was going to say, it feels very Shakespearean.
0: And that what's funny is sure. I have a, I also have a third thing that it reminds me of, which is is just mythology in general.
2: Yeah, it's an amalgamation of like a lot of myths.
0: Sure. When I saw this the first time, I thought that this was like an adaptation of an actual myth from this region of the world. I don't know, like, I'll admit my ignorance to like I've read Roger Zelazny's lord of light but i haven't read the bhagavad-gita like i don't actually really understand and i won't pretend to understand that i have a thorough knowledge of the mythology of this region or the multiple mythologies i should say but like you know to me this felt very much like a ten commandments or a bin-hur
2: yeah there's some big bin-hur energy
1: well when you look at Rajamouli's, like influences, which you can see now because he submitted uh, a ballot for the Sight and Sound poll to the BFI on that last round that was highly publicized at the start of this year, his favorite movies are stuff like Gladiator.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: He likes
1: Mel Gibson epics a lot. He loves Forrest Gump. Uh, he's, a, he's a populist filmmaker. I was
2: going to say, he's just your regular but dude.
1: Also listed among his ten favorite movies of all time is The Lion King. <laughs> Beautiful. Maybe it wasn't a conscious decision to remake that story but the overlap between the disney version of that myth you know which was a myth before shakespeare touched it himself Mm -hmm. is pretty clear yes so the down to the point where the murderous uncle he has to dethrone has a scar over his his left eye eye. yeah
2: (laughs) it's great
0: (laughs) achieved in battle while killing his father okay so so that you're talking about baladeva he has the scar, but sort of the physical deformity of Uncle Scar is present on um, his Vajaladeva. Okay,
1: it's not a one-to-one corollary, but, yeah, was, all, right, not, all, right. but all the pieces are there. I mean, come yeah. on.
2: I also think, you know, the interesting thing that I found is you can't escape a Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings influence here.
1: I would rather watch this three times in a row than ever watch a lord of the rings movie ever <laughs> there's again. so
2: many two towers things going on here
1: i was thinking about that too where i was just like why am i so bored with like nine hour epics that require all this like background and lore and then you finally get to the big climactic battle like i i usually find this stuff so tiring uh but this works for me in a way that those movies do not well because this yeah. is a great i respect movie.
2: that but they're, yeah, they're comforting to me the Lord of the Rings movies, that's my comfort food because I'm a big Tolkien nerd. But this movie is, yeah, it's more entertaining and I loved both of them. I had a blast. Even with the like the love stories, you know, they were sexist, but they were very adorable. To the point where it's like, oh, I wish I could hate this, but it's also very cute that he's painting on her to flirt. Oh, the scene
1: where they are fighting and he <laughs> uses his weapon to strip her and then feminize yeah. her. Uh, to show her how beautiful she could be. Yeah,
2: exactly. I wish I could hate this, but I'm also like, you, your flirting was too cute. I will say it worked for me more
1: in the earlier timeline where um they're fighting, flirting, but they're doing so by killing the faceless baddies they're invading the palace, and uh one of his flirtation methods is he shoots three arrows past her skull, and uh they get so close to her that they rattle her earrings like little bells. I was like, okay, that's kind of hot, right? <laughs> That one worked for me.
2: Yeah. The earlier timeline romance is slightly less sexist than, you know, the current timeline one.
1: I'm going to throw a potentially hot take out here right now. Do you need the first movie at all? I'm not saying it's not entertaining, but, like, the second one is way better. And, like, I feel like you instantly get the story... Or at least most of it, without the two and a half hours of build up from the first one.
0: Okay, so as someone who's uniquely qualified to answer this question, <laughs> I will say the second one is less confusing once you have seen the first one. Okay, because that is that is what establishes that there are two separate. Time-
2: yeah, there's two separate timelines, and you would not know.
0: Yeah, it, it's not until I, so you are sort of getting this like. So first and foremost, I think that you really do need the understanding from the first one of why Bahubali Sr. is so beloved by the people. You do need that defeat of the Kalakaya to occur so that you can see the difference, not just between... Because it it is more, I think, narratively satisfying, for one thing, that Balaladeva, you don't hate him at first. Yeah. Because that is also, like, you know, that's one of the things that I was going to mention about mythology is, like, the Old Testament is, like, lousy with stories about secession and inheritances. Mm -hmm. Like, that's, like, the the Old Testament, it's all over it. You know, there's the who gets the inheritance, the outsider raised as a foster sibling who Mm -hmm. is treated as the better inheritor of this power because of their... Uh, greater devotion to the people. I do think that, like, that Kalakaya battle scene where we see that Boaladeva is perfectly willing to sacrifice civilian hostages
2: to to reach his goals.
0: He
1: also does the pro wrestling heel thing where, like, he cheats to win.
0: Yes. Which is really
1: easy to boo.
2: It is. (laughs) Yes.
1: And he does it again, you know, when he steals the throne through political machinations through the mother in the second film, he cheats to win. And then in another pro wrestling heel move, he beats his opponent when his opponent's already been knocked down by another
0: warrior. Uh, yes. So, yeah. I I do think that the extent to which Balaladeva was willfully manipulating his mother regarding Devasena is up to interpretation. Because, huh. you know, he did fall in love with her portrait.
2: But he also only saw her portrait... Because he's been like following his brother's exploits.
0: Yeah, I I agree with that take. Well,
2: Well, at the same time.
0: No, because his mother, because Shivagami was showing him tons and tons of portraits. Yeah. But I think that, so I did, when I was watching this, I knew that we were going to be talking about professional wrestling at some point. (laughs) You have to.
2: Oh yeah, I was going to say, there is a specific moment in the second movie when Bahubali comes down on his uncle. I I, I was just like, oh was wrestling. Yeah, like, Brandon's
1: cheering. Well, yeah, from the top rope, you know, <laughs> leaps with, like, a flying elbow. Yeah, the elbow. But also, like, in a more direct way, like, since this movie has come out, I don't know who on the production team at WWE is paying attention, but if you watch broadcasts, especially at pay-per-views, um, when wrestlers enter the, sc- enter the ring, you know, they have the usual fanfare with the, you know, entrance music and the background video, yeah. but on the screen at home, you also see these, like, CGI godlike statues of these like figurine versions of the wrestlers that like only appear on TV at home, and they're practically the exact same recreations of events from the first film that appear at the start of the second. So like at, at the start of Baho Bali, the conclusion, they show scenes from Bahu Bali the beginning as these like CGI
0: statues. It's really cool, too. It's yeah. like, they're like porcelain and they actually have like cracking in the glazing. Yeah. which that's one of the places where the CGI is not super realistic but it is really cool with like the artistic interpretation that's going on mm-hmm. it looks great
1: and uh, it looks so great that WWE just like wholesale ripped it off <laughs> from what I can tell <laughs> I mean
2: and good for them
1: yeah where did you see wrestling in this boomer
0: well just in like the constant like slamming together of hot shirtless male bodies yeah. like there's well, just yeah. they're just everywhere
2: <laughs> the thing about Bollywood, Hollywood Tallywood, like Indian cinema is It's like Hollywood, but worse. So like everyone's attractive, but it's like cranked up to 11 in Indian cinema. It's just every new person that's introduced. You're like, did you have to find another super attractive person? I guess you did. Constantly.
0: There are various normal looking people in a lot of the crowd scenes. Yeah. But like not, you know, not anytime that you're supposed to be really able to focus on anyone's face. Anytime you're supposed to be able to see faces, everyone is super hot. Yeah. Everybody is dressed like they're wrestlers. There's lots of harem pants. I knew that we were going to be talking about WWE at some point. <laughs> <Whatever>. like, <laughs> it's all
1: in the crowd work. Like yeah. if someone's gonna betray someone, the audience knows before it happens, mm-hmm. and you like boo them or like say no, don't do it, like as it's happening.
2: You love to hate them. And there's yeah. There's signaling. <laughs>
1: And that kind of like cheering and like audience participation is actually like part of the theatrical environment, like where people will cheer and like jump up in their seats and like it's a more audience participatory art form than like what we're used to in American theaters, where like that would be considered disruptive. You're supposed to be cheering, and it, the movie kind of leaves
0: room for you to boo and holler, which I love uh, as these things are playing out. To kind of like circle back to the question of like, is this first movie necessary though? Uh, the things like i said that you will miss if you only watch the second one that maybe aren't clear after watching them back to back the characterization of shivagami in the first one is really important i think because if you just watch the second one all you see is the way that she is like led to her downfall by her husband yeah whereas you don't get to understand why anyone would respect her wisdom or the way that she ruled so wisely for so long before that yeah because all of her characterization in the second one is that you know she takes offense to what Deva Saina responds to her marriage proposal for Balala Deva with, and it 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 like hardens her heart against Deva Saina forever. Yeah, which so, we also
2: do though in the second one. Get this song about Ho Bully and how he's such a badass, but how much he loves his mom, which such a good moment, just like this montage of him being like tough and rugged. but, you know, the words are like, oh, he can crush mountains, but look at him like respect his mother. <laughs> but yeah, like, love he loves <laughs>
1: I mean, it, in a lot of ways, that is the bigger betrayal of the second movie. Yeah. like, oh, by his, far. his uncle and yeah, his uncle and cousin have already proven themselves like disingenuous in the like the fight for the crown. yeah, the betrayal of the mother is like the bigger surprise. and like, He has good reason to do it. And that's like the downfall of everything. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Well, yeah, it's that she betrays him first by, you know, not really understanding that he, you know, she has she has taught him to honor two different things and he is honoring the greater one. But in doing so, it disrespects her. And she's been, you know, queen mother for so long And her word has been treated as law, which she has to like explicitly establish that in the first one at the very sort of like chronological beginning of this story. That's something that we are explicitly told that she has to prove with blood that her word is law so that she can rule this because, you know, nobody wants her, a woman in charge initially. So I do think that that's, again, something that's important to establish. So. First and foremost, Shivagami initially being wise is something that you miss in the first one. Uh, if you miss, if you only watch the second one, rather. Um, the extent to which Balaladeva was Bahubali's brother. Like, he really was his brother. They did do everything together. They did come up together. And it's only, like, Deva being manipulated by his own sort of, like, cruel father, as well as his, like, lust for power that he never settles for being second best and that causes his downfall as well. But you get to see more of that turn. Like, I don't think that when you first meet Malala Deva, you should think that he's evil. It's like when you watch again, you know, an adaptation of the Moses story, when you talk about Prince of Egypt, you're not supposed to know. And I mean, you, you probably know the Bible story, but when you watch that movie as a narrative unto itself, You're not meant to see Moses' relationship with Ramses and be like, oh, Ramses is going to betray him. Ramses will be Pharaoh who, you know, does all of these horrible things to Moses and his people once he reunites with his, like, birth culture.
2: You can see it start because all, like, Bahubali is, like, out there eating lunch with slaves. Like, we're not sure where Ledeva is, like.
0: They're eating together and then... Uh, Bahubali goes over to Katapa yeah. and is like share your food with me I'll make it a royal order and again that establishes something very important about you know Bahubali Sr. Amarendra, which is that he does not see class distinction the way that his forefathers and his, his brother slash cousin yeah. do that he holds the life of the common people to be valuable and important, which is like the thread that travels through that confrontation they have with the Kalakea, where he he finds a way to both overcome enemy forces and rescue the hostages at the same time. That having been said, other than these like character bits, I don't think you lose that much narratively by just watching the second one.
1: Well the the thing that's like really warmly nostalgic to me about these kinds of movies is that they call back to a type of action hero worship that is missing from American movies now. Yeah. It's very sincere. There's no like, well that just happened or like can you believe this kind of like
2: no.
1: Deadpoolification of it. Um and it's about like how the hero is the most noble, powerful man to ever walk the planet
2: and he just poses like constantly in this cool as hell way with the wind like blowing his hair
1: yeah it's like
2: every there's always a wind
1: machine on hand yeah
2: every other scene he's just (laughs) posing and i am living for it
1: and in the more modern versions of these movies that happens even without the mythical context it's like you know i I just watched this one called pathan recently where uh shahru khan has his arms tethered to two different helicopters while he's on the top of a speeding oh, train. And he brings his biceps together to smash the helicopters together. Beautiful. And then uh it'll cut to him with like aviator glasses on and his hair is blowing in the wind in the same way. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> it really is pulling from this like older tradition of action movie. And what I like about the two halves of this one is that you get two. Of the like most powerful noble badasses to walk the earth, and they're practically the same person. (laughs) They're played by the same actor, and they have the same qualities. There's really no difference between the father and the son, really,
0: except for the vocalism, the vocalization.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Whether or not that was an intentional choice from the actor or the uh, person in charge of the dubbing is is up for debate.
0: But yeah. Both father and son, and uh, again, I think we should note that there's the implication that they are the they are the same, right? Like that, a reincarnation. That thing he's almost. reincarnated immediately in his own son, which is very funny. But as like the Ubermensch, uh, uh, there, there is something very funny about like he he is the greatest. That like I want him to be my king, and I don't think there should be a king. I don't think we should. I know. Write him on I tea. know. That's how but I felt. He is the Ubermensch, like in that he's the strongest and therefore but also because of his learning the best suited to rule it's almost like we've moved away at least in the west
1: from this style of hero worship because we've introduced like the anti-hero yeah or the non-monarchistic cynicism you know that will like undercut this in so many ways we're like letting the real world spoil how fun this it is, is to true. see this like pure fiction version and of this kind of hero. Here's
2: where I'm gonna plug like romance novels because romance novels <laughs> never <laughs> lost that.
1: I mean, neither has pro wrestling. Pro exactly. wrestling yeah. has very clear hero non-hero dynamics. I mean, there are more antiheroes in wrestling than there were when I was a kid, but uh, the basic psychology of like most matches, kind of like Bahu Bali too, like. You don't need, really, the six months of build-up in that storyline to get the immediate drama of what's happening. Like, you know who to boo and who to cheer pretty quickly. Because, you know, one is a righteous dude and the other is a, a vicious cheater who will betray you for a selfish opportunity at any time.
2: I also like this movie. It's called The Conclusion, but over half of it is a flashback.
0: It's very strange. <laughs> and I, actually, that does kind of tie back into like, could you watch just the second one and understand it? Again, I, I did, or at least I thought I did. And now I understand it more. But if you were to completely restructure this so that it played out fully chronologically, it would not have the same emotional impact. Wouldn't. And I think sure. that, that is something that also proves that both of them are important in, co- in, in correspondence with each other.
1: The second one is the better film, but you you kind of do need to go on that, like, grueling Lord of the Rings journey to get to the, the emotional payoff. Well,
2: I also think you need, like, the childhood stuff, too. Like, if you're gonna be immersed in this, like, mythical world. It's cool to start from, he was a little kid, even still, in his reincarnated form. He is a good son, and scales mountains, and, you know, all of that, like think it's still fun to watch that transformation and you now so many epics from this part of the world are like watch this guy grow up nobly and then basically you know by the end of these epics like essentially a god
0: that also goes back to that whole mythology part of it and yeah. again like i said i do want to like tread lightly because i don't want to insult anyone by saying like oh this reminds me of like myths that we have in the west because I, I am including, like, Judaism and Christianity, like, in that mythology when I'm talking about it. And that's not really the West. Yeah. It's debatable. That's, like, a, you know, a larger topic. But, like, in the, like, Old and New Testament, whenever there is a figure of importance, we don't generally meet them as an adult unless they convert as an adult. Yeah. Most of the time, we do get a lot of insight into child rearing. We know that, you know... That the child Jesus was found, you know, his parents couldn't find him, and then they found him discussing with the priests at the temple the finer aspects of theology. You know, we know about Moses growing up in Pharaoh's palace. We know about Jacob and Esau and how they fought. And, you know, those are also all, like, secession crises and, like, inheritance crises, because there's always, always about birthright. But I also think that like one of the reasons I was connected to mythology was that this also especially the second one, he has to go through all of these feats, which are very Herculean in their own way, including yeah. like diverting rivers is something that he actually does in this.
2: Well I think it's important to note that like if you look at the ancient myths, different themes occur throughout you no know, the ancient world, but are pretty like there's a lot of similar themes and there's a lot of trade back and forth and they influenced each other.
0: True,
1: we are getting back into um Tolkien and Joseph Campbell territory here too. Where like that, <laughs> that hero's journey structure is something common to a lot of different religions.
2: Yeah, exactly, like, and I don't think it's unfair given Shmueli's, like influences to compare this to western myth
1: well yeah he he loves hollywood blockbuster filmmaking yeah. and you can see it in the work you know and, and if anyone is missing you know you, you hear people get really nostalgic for stuff like gladiator or the mummy or something like that like we don't make that kind of sincere adventure story anymore
2: i actually also thought about the mummy um yeah, <laughs> that but was another one i was thinking about
1: the thing is that like a dozen movies like that get made all like every single year it's just not in america uh, they are easily accessible if you n- know where to look. I think a lot of people don't, though. So
0: well,
2: that's I what we're, we're doing. God's work of, here. <laughs> yeah, with the popularity of R R and you know, it's a huge hit for a movie from this part of the world. Yeah, I think people are learning where to look, and there's a lot of ills to be said for streaming services, but I do think they are helping people find more things like this
1: I don't think RRR would have had as much notoriety if Bahubali was not as readily accessible on Netflix all over the world like I think that distribution helped get him a wider international audience now does he need an American audience to survive hell no he is making the biggest blockbusters in his industry right now you know I gotta say, I actually prefer RRR to this. I think he's, like, improved his craft a little more. Yeah. But everything I love about that movie is also in this one.
2: Yes. I really, really enjoyed these. And it just makes me... I just want to go down the comforting rabbit hole of all of these sorts of movies. It kind of feels just like coming home in a way. Even though I'm not... I don't speak the language. I have to look up different, like, gods and goddesses. To get some references. Like, I don't know if y'all do the same thing I do with that.
1: I did not do a lot of research. No, not this okay. <laughs> time.
2: Okay, so there's this scene, and it's actually hilarious if you looked up God Ganesh, where she's a queen mother is carrying the coals on her head, and the elephants were up, and he comes in and he blocks the elephants. It's the had ganesh's statue and she's able to like walk underneath it and ganesh is a god of like removing obstacles oh cool
0: oh that is cool yeah awesome. i also i did want to say when we were talking about colorism earlier one of the things that i forgot to mention was that i do love that they're like their demon is a white man (laughs) like when they (laughs) when when she's bringing those coals to burn the effigy which of course gets the callback at the end um when other devasena is like bringing the coals to light the funeral pyre to burn balaladeva alive you know that's a it it kind of looks like balaladeva and it kind of looks like his father as well but it's also like that is a caucasian demon that they are burning an effigy yeah. <laughs> like it's it's uh, really clear
2: you really need to see RRR yeah
1: that's one of the <laughs> things that like makes that movie so fun is like there the, the yes. same cast issues and like colorism issues do persist in that film. But there is a common enemy in the white colonialist British, you know, empire that uh is very easy to cheer their destruction in the same like pro
0: wrestling kind of way. And what's really funny yes. is I had seen the Natu Natu clip without any context. I didn't know what it was, because like months ago I was once again telling my friends about how much I loved bahubali and we watched a couple of the musical numbers and then it like auto-played to that natu natu one and i was like what is this why does it look it's amazing
2: because
0: i really thought it was like a like a regency period piece that had that had been made (laughs) in india which i i guess it is
2: is. yeah (laughs) well i mean it's it's later than regency but yeah it is a period piece
1: that scene looks like the weirdest cutaway from Bridgerton ever. <laughs> the The costuming
0: is yeah. all over the
1: place, historically speaking. The time frame is very hard to place
0: uh, based on how people yeah. are dressed. Well, I'm glad that you enjoyed it, Allie, and it sounds like you enjoyed it too, Brandon.
1: Oh, greatly. I mean, like I said, I, I didn't start watching these movies till like 2018 when I happened to see 2.0 in the theater and like it made me an instant convert. Um, and, you know, on most of my viewings, it's like what's playing in the theater. I want to go see one of these big and loud. Very rarely will I sit down on my couch and watch one like clear an evening like this. So I very much appreciated the opportunity to catch up with this. Cause I really enjoyed it. Um, I mean, it exemplified everything I love about this genre in this industry. It takes a couple sittings to do it though. I, I can't imagine someone watching both of these back to oh, back. Yeah. No,
0: no, no, no.
2: <laughs> you need like a breather because yes, they are long. They are so much.
1: Yeah. You would be numb by the end.
2: It's almost overstimulating how much is going on. You just have to, like, take a day.
1: Well, next week on the show, we're going to experience a little bit of whiplash. We're doing very understated, slow, subtle movies. Um, We're doing a slow cinema episode where we're going to talk about stuff like Jean Dielman. And uh, James found this movie called Sleep Has Her House, which is practically an art installation and not even a feature film. So, um, I hope you like the over-the-top, extravagant, crowd-pleasing populism of Baho Bali, because uh, we're about to pull way, way back and g- get into a lot of static shots that last eight or nine minutes on end where nothing happens on camera.
2: You guys watched uh, Tango by uh We Lothar? considered
1: it, but it was like seven and a half hours. Uh, so we- we bailed <laughs> it's on that so long. Yeah. <laughs> so that long. was definitely up for discussion, and once we saw the runtime, we bailed. <laughs> so, maybe yeah. another episode some other time.